John chapter 19, John 19, we'll be picking up right where we left off last week, we'll be picking up in verse 17 of the chapter, and let me say this by way of introduction, this is a difficult text, uh, not because it's hard to understand, it's not hard to understand, it's a difficult text because it's very easy to understand, and what we understand from it is very hard to process. Uh, we're delving into some of the details of the crucifixion tonight, and there's always a tension when you talk about the crucifixion that you want to say enough, but you don't want to gawk at it as if it were a horror movie. But the problem is, this reads like a horror movie. Crucifixion was so awful and so tragic and was designed in such a way that it is almost painful to even read about. It's hard for me to read about. I know it's hard for some of us to hear about. But it is good to be reminded of the details of it when passages like this afford the opportunity. So the way I want to organize this material tonight is much like last week. I only have one point, And it's actually quite similar to last week because I think some of the truths are the same. So this snapshot of the crucifixion of Jesus is yet another profound picture of the sovereignty of God, fulfilled prophecy, and the love of God on display. And as we dig into the details here in just a moment, I think it's important for us to remember what has already occurred in the life of Jesus up to this point. We know that he has experienced hematridosis, the blood sweat from the emotional strain that he's been under. Then on top of that, he was struck first in Caiaphas' presence. Then he was subjected to a series of blows by the palace guards as they blindfolded him and taunted him to identify his persecutors. They spit on him, struck him in the face repeatedly. He was then scourged, as we talked about last week, which was nicknamed the halfway death. He was stripped naked. He was tied he was dragged around, mocked, and all of this before he was handed over to be crucified, as verse 17 says. When talking about this idea of crucifixion, Cicero, the Roman statesman philosopher, said this. He said, let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen. Nay, not even near his thoughts or his eyes or his ears. It was considered such an egregious and shameful of deaths that they didn't even want to talk about it or even think about it. Even though it had been derived from the thoughts of the Persians and the Phoenicians, it was certainly perfected, if one could say that, by the Romans. And they used it to incredible ends. So when Jesus was delivered over to be crucified, here's a bit what it would look like. The cross beam, or patibulum, was of the cross, was placed upon his torn shoulders, much like an oar. It weighed over 100 pounds, and he was sent to carry this through the streets until he could not. We learn that he was basically at the point of extreme fatigue and blood loss and so on, and and someone had to be called in, we find out from the other Gospels, it's Simon the Serene, to be able to help carry this cross. 
And all the while, he was sent on what was usually the longest route possible to try to send the message that crime does not pay and also sometimes to see if anyone would speak in the defense of the convicted. So as he winds his way through what many call the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, he gets to the point where it says here in the next verse, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place, the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And this idea of going out here is significant because it is in line with the requirement that executions take place outside the camp or the city. And the thought of it being called Golgotha, which as the text says, means place of the skull, is possibly because it even looked like a skull. So the place of death even looked like a place of death. Once he finally got to where he would eventually give his life once and for all. He was laid down on this patabum. Spikes were driven through his hands or wrists at the place where they would cause the most pain. The place where the menial nerves came together, right in this area, most likely. And also probably through the wrists so that it would hold his body on the cross. Now, as this progresses, some of us are aware of this, some of us are probably not. When the rest of Jesus was affixed to the cross, it was done so in such a way that basically every time he would try to catch a breath, he would have to lean down on the spikes that were driven through his feet just to pull in enough air, further pulling awful, awful pain into his lungs and also large pieces of wood from the rough hewn wood that would go straight into his back. Crucifixion was designed in such a way to inflict the maximum amount of pain on its victim. But what is so compelling about this is that the physical pain that Jesus would have been enduring throughout this entire process would pale in comparison to the spiritual pain that he would endure as he took the wrath of God upon himself for our sins and experienced the separation from God the Father that caused him to call out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So physical pain plus spiritual pain at the cross. Look at verse 18. There they crucified him with him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. The idea here is that even his placement in the center would be to communicate another level of disgrace, if you will. That they had two robbers, insurrectionists most likely, and Jesus was placed in the middle as if to say, and this one is the worst. But in what they were doing to try to shame Jesus they were actually fulfilling two prophecies from the Old Testament. The first one is that from Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. It says that a company of evildoers encircles me. And Isaiah 53, 12, that I would be numbered among the transgressors, the suffering servant. And so what they intended to be an additional set of evil, God uses as a further fulfillment 
of prophetic truth that reminds us of the veracity of the Bible, that reminds us of the trustworthiness of Jesus, and that reminds us that even in this, God is still in control. You see the same thing again in verse 19. Look at this. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Now, some would point out that this inscription has actually followed Jesus through the streets all the way to this place of crucifixion. The way that this often would go is that there would be some kind of soldier or helper for this process that would carry this in front of the victim to communicate, here's what this person has done. And so when they got to this Golgotha place, that was then nailed above his head. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, these may seem like insignificant details to us, but I assure you that they are not. First of all, this phrase, king of the Jews, is yet another example of John using double meaning and irony. Pilate is using this to kind of jab at the Jews. He's also using this to say this is why he's being crucified because of this proclamation. But those of us who follow Christ know that just like when he said, behold the man, he says far more than he knows. Because that is the king of the Jews on that cross. That is the king of all of creation on that cross. And the fact that he is crucified at this place that requires three different languages for this to be written is of significance. For one thing, Warren Wearsby points this out, it shows us that the Lord was crucified in a place where many peoples and many nations met, a cosmopolitan place, and that Hebrew is the language of religion, Greek the language of philosophy, and Latin the language of law. And all three of those things combined to crucify Jesus. But it also shows, beyond that, what Jesus did, he did for the whole world. John emphasizes throughout the gospel, and we've seen this page after page, the worldwide dimensions of the work of Jesus. So without realizing it, Pilate wrote a gospel track when he prepared this title. Jesus indeed was the king of the Jews. So even in this moment, when it's all coming apart, God is still in control, and Jesus is ruling and reigning even from his place on the cross. But the Jews didn't like this. They didn't like what it communicated. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And what's interesting here in the, 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 the language in which this was spoken is that John uses an imperfect verb tense that suggests that the Jews repeatedly asked Pilate to change this. But then the way Pilate retorts, the original language here, and he says, what I've written, I've written, really it can be translated like this, what I have written, I have written, and it will always remain written. So he is communicating that he's put out with them. 
and that he has said what he said and he intends to follow through. So again, much like behold the man, Pilate says much more than he means. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So again, you interact with the text from Psalm 22. Verse 18 here points out, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So even in what seems like a tiny, insignificant detail, we get underlined in bright red in the blood of Christ, that God is indeed in control, that he is fulfilling the prophecies that were made a thousand years ago when David was describing in numerous prophetic details what would ultimately come to pass in the life and death of Jesus. Also, from a literary standpoint here, one writer pointed out that the way that these soldiers callously gamble for the clothing of Jesus as he's on the cross, as he dies, is almost a picture of how most people in the world callously disregard and pass over and treat the atonement of the Lord Jesus. That even though this is happening in real time and space, it also is a real pointer of how people behave when we talk about the gospel sometimes. Just a careless disregard for the life and death of Christ. But then in verse 24 and following, we get an immediate contrast. It says, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby... He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we had four soldiers in the verses before. Now you have four women. Let's talk a bit about these four women. First, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think most of us would struggle to even wrap our heads around the type of anguish and grief Mary would have felt at this moment. Many of us, though not all in this room, have children or at least have children in our lives that we care for deeply, members of our own family. Mary would have raised Jesus his entire life would have been there for all the key moments, would have seen most of the miracles, would have experienced all of the ups and downs of Jesus' life, and now here he is dying on the cross. Surely it's a fulfillment of what we look at each year with Luke chapter 2. 
Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That moment had finally come. And as Jesus was dying, this baby that she had nursed, this man who had come to save the world, was passing away in front of her. We also find out that her sister was there. Now, John doesn't give us her name, but it seems logical to me, based on the other Gospels, Mark 15, Matthew 27, parallel passages to this, that this, uh, the, the second woman would be Salome, Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John. And this is interesting because you may recall that she was severely rebuked at one point by Jesus for her jostling to try to get them good seats next to the throne, so to speak. But here she was at the feet of Jesus in the end. The third lady, Mary, the wife of Clopas, we know virtually nothing about. But we do know about the fourth lady, Mary Magdalene, the lady from whom seven devils had been cast out, as Mark 16 and Luke 8 tell us. This is the one that Jesus, who had described as someone who sinned much and therefore loves much. The one who would come to Jesus while he was at the Pharisee's house and reclining at dinner and washing his feet with her tears, then wiping them with her hair and anointing them with perfume. Surely a, a profound loss in her life as well. And yet in the midst of all this, the unimaginable horror, the anguish, both physical and spiritual, that Jesus would be experiencing as he essentially asphyxiated on the cross. In the midst of all that, look back at what he has the presence of mind to say. He looks at John, or first he looks and he says to his mother, woman, behold your son, and then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. And it's interesting here, the, 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 the Greek that is used here to describe this indicates that Jesus is very much in control and almost matter-of-fact as he spoke these instructions. So again, another poignant example of when it seems out of control, Jesus is in complete control. This also is right in line with what the Bible teaches us about taking care of members of our family. And it's very likely that Mary would have been widowed at this point, based on what we can surmise from history, probably in her late 40s, early 50s, with no or very little personal income. And he is saying, take care of this woman, John. Take her into your home. Now that I'm not going to be here to do it, Treat this woman like your mother. And from what we can pick up from history along the way, it seems that he did exactly that. So the takeaways here from this instruction, I think, are twofold. First of all, Jesus is in control even when he looks like he isn't. And second, he is making provision for those he loves and those who are dear to him, even at the moment when he should have no bandwidth to do so. 
And friends, think about that and the implications for us. Sometimes we feel like Jesus is too busy. That's just simply not true. If he's not busy at the moment when he's being crucified, he is not too busy to deal with us and to handle the issues that we bring him. So the power, the control, the love, the providential care of Jesus is on display yet again. Now, let's talk a little bit further about what we do with a passage like this. Well, I think some of it we have already done and we're already doing. That we hear it and we are affected by it. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if we hear this and read this and we're not affected by it deeply, then we should probably take a step back and ask ourselves, why would that be the case? Why would we be disaffected, if you will, in hearing about what Jesus endured for us? Because it doesn't seem typical to me that you would hear about extreme mocking, unbelievable torture, and not sense a bit of a wince within our own soul. So I think there is a a healthy way that we are stunned by this passage. That we are marked by this passage. And then that that leads us forward to say, okay, now based on that, what does that mean I need to do? What, What do I do with this feeling that I have? Well, let me give you a couple of suggestions. I think the first one is, if you're here and you don't yet know Christ, then you need to embrace the gospel. You need to embrace that Jesus did this for you, that this is what your sin deserved, it's what it required, and it extends a divine welcome to you that nothing else in this world can. That this message and the good news of the gospel is a blinking arrow saying, come home, come this way, look what I've done for you. And if that strikes a chord in your heart tonight, perhaps even in an unexpected way, in just a bit when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you put your faith and trust in Jesus. We want to help you take that step on your journey. Now, for those of us who've already crossed that line of faith and we hear that, I think a number of responses come to the surface, one of which is immense gratitude that we hear this both what I've said and also what's between the lines and the horrific detail of crucifixion. And we say he did that for me. He did that for me. And it helps us understanding the seriousness of our sin, that this is what sin required. But it also helps us in understanding the greatness of the love and the mercy of God. Look at the degree that God was willing to endure so that he could build this family. The family that we call refuge, the family of all people who know Jesus in this area and around the world throughout history, 
This is the degree to which God loves his people. And he has made full and appropriate payment for their sins. And that should strike us with great joy, with great gratitude, with great awareness of the goodness of the gospel that he has shown us in passages like this. So let your heart be warmed, be deeply affected, and be helped by what is happening here. Now I would also say this, much like last week, this provides us a unique opportunity to take a step back and look and marvel again at the sovereignty of God and also the fulfilled prophecy that is on display here. Think in particular, and if you haven't read this in a while, I would encourage you to read it. Go back and look at Psalm 22. You saw it come up repeatedly here in this passage. It's actually the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. And look at all these things that come to pass in this crucifixion event. I think there's also some sincere apologetic value here, too. Some, some skeptics could say, oh, well, you know, Jesus went around doing these things because he knew the Old Testament and he was, he was just manipulating the circumstances. Do you think the soldiers knew the Old Testament? Do you think those guys got together with greed in their hearts, gambling for his tunic in order that they might fulfill the Old Testament that they knew nothing about, most likely? No, they didn't. The fact that this went down the way it did, these dark, calloused, hardened soldiers fulfilling the word of God some 1,000 years later, it's another reminder to us that the Bible is true and that God is indeed in control. And I pointed this out already, but let me go back and say something about it again. What Jesus says there in the final moments, telling John to take care of his mother, that's important. It's important in the sense of what I said, that, that we are to look after those in our families, and that looks different, different situations, so on and so forth. But also that even when it was the most out of control, God was very much in control. Friends, we need that truth. And it, it, that truth is one of those that I would call almost like an umbrella truth, that you put your umbrella up before the rains of life fall on it so that it keeps you dry in the storms of life. This type of providential control and power that Jesus had when it appeared he was the most out of control and the most powerless, <coughs> it's a buoy for our souls, and we need it. Finally, let me also say this. This is an opportunity for us to be reminded that crucifixion is a key part of the Christian life. You think about what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. When he talked about his experience, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Crucifixion, as a metaphor for following Jesus, 
has always been close to historic Christianity. Now, sadly, we don't hear too much about that today. What we hear almost exclusively is the other end of the spectrum. And we do need to talk about that. God does help us with the big problems of life. He absolutely does. He helps us overcome. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Yes and amen to all of that. But we cannot emphasize that to the point of never talking about this. Because what is it that Jesus said when he talked about following him? Let me give you just three examples here from each of uh, uh, two two other Gospels. When talking about following him, Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Matthew 16, 24, If anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 10, 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So it's not that this is not true. It's that this is also true. And the, and the truth of the matter is more like this. If we really want to experience true overcoming in this life, we get that in part through experiencing crucifixion with Christ. Because in the kingdom of God, the way down is the way up. If we really want to see the power of the Holy Ghost turned loose in our lives, that comes from yielding ourselves fully to Jesus. And not just in a one-time sense, but in a day-by-day, in a moment-by-moment sense, a taking up our cross and following Him. Another way to say it is that there should always be some smell of Calvary in the way that we live out our faith. That aspect of the message is missing from so much of how the gospel is taught and preached and embodied today. So it's not that this is not true, it's that this is also true, and why not believe both? That is what we must bring together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew about this. He talked about this. He said, true grace is not cheap. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without a cross, grace without Jesus. Grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Above all, it is costly because it costs the Son of God his life. It costs God his Son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. And above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives. But he delivered him up for us. So as we look at the crucifixion, it's all these things. It's an opportunity to be stopped in our tracks 
by the providence of God. It's an opportunity to have our hearts that grow cold, warmed by the love of God. It's, a, it's an opportunity to have our stubborn wills reminded that if anyone would come after Jesus, we must take up our cross and follow him. And it's an opportunity to consider the claims of Christ so that we might be saved if we aren't. It's all these things and so much more. So let me ask you this question as we close tonight. What is it that Jesus is saying to you through this? Chances are it's not just one thing. It might be many things. It might be something I said specifically. It might be something that connects with what you read Thursday morning in your time with God. But whatever it is, let's be open to the Spirit of God as He moves among us. Let's be available to what the Lord would say to us through this precious passage. And let's pray. Oh, Lord, we gather around this passage, and it's a heavy one. But it's a heavy one in a good way. It's a heavy one in the sense of just hearing about what you endured for us. We don't take that lightly. It's a heavy one in the sense that we see the grace of God on display, and we are just overcome by it. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, help us, challenge us, change us, and that we would be changed in this moment and in the moments to come by what this passage says for us and means for us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name.